I've biked to work since 1985. So I'm physically experiencing the city since 85. And I feel the difference when I bike through an area that has trees and is cooler versus an area that does not. I experience the city in a very personal way. Hi, my name is Marcelo Jauregui Volpe, and this is The Climate Divide, a new podcast from Hola Cultura, supported by Spotlight DC and the Fund for Investigative Journalism. You just heard from Tommy Wells, the director of the DC Department of Energy and the Environment, or DOEE. Last week, I had the chance to interview Director Wells about the DOEE's efforts to combat extreme heat in the district. Christine McDonald, the executive director of Hola Cultura, also joined the interview. When was the first time you heard about heat islands? When I represented Ward 6 in Washington, D.C., someone showed me these maps from NOAA that looked down where heat islands were. And I saw an area by RFK Stadium. And I said, wow, that's our worst, largest heat island. What's going on there? And I realized it's all those parking lots. And so that showed up from outer space of those parking lots being so hot. And then I learned more and more about the heat island effect from that. So it's really been just kind of an evolution of understanding, learning. And I think, you know, there's challenges as we go forward. Cities more and more are taking their industrially zoned areas where we've neglected with green infrastructure and they're turning it into housing. Historically, people have put low-income housing around industrial areas and industrial areas don't have a lot of green infrastructure and became more and more aware of where we have trees and where we don't. I've always been very sensitive to the whole issue of trees. DC used to be known as the city of trees as kind of the tagline to the city. And then you had Dutch elm disease wipe out all the elm trees and those were almost all of our tree trees were elms. And so we're having to build that back. I started my career as a child protection social worker going to the poorest parts of the city and would have to spend a lot of time in areas where it is not as green. I can tell the difference. And so I think having a tactile experience with the city for over 30 some years, I've been aware of the import of having trees of having cooler areas and the impact on low-income residents that um, are in a hotter and hotter city. We have these maps that just so very clearly show heat disparity across the city. And then I guess what, for the city itself and also the Department of Energy and the Environment, what is sort of the long-term vision to tackle this, this inequity? We prioritize areas of the city and the work that we do. For example, flooding. We have people before us in cities across the country put affordable housing in flood zones because it was cheaper there. So now we're having to go back and retrofit and protect those areas and they're in low income neighborhoods. Same thing with heat islands that in areas where multifamily large affordable housing has been built, the same type of attention for the green infrastructure was not there. The same type of stakeholders to see that green infrastructure goes into the public realm. And so we prioritize it and we um, invest money each year. It helps with stormwater management. It has a lot of different benefits. 
beyond just attacking the heat islands, but heat islands are a priority area, but also that's priority area for green infrastructure, for stormwater management and other things that all works together. And that's been a benefit. As you know, we recently had one of the worst heat waves of the summer here in DC. I just wanted to ask about how you felt the Department of Energy Environment's reaction and response to that heat wave was, and maybe compare that response to how they responded in the past. We had a study done called Climate Ready DC, and that predicted how our climate in DC will change. We know that climate's changing across the world, but for different areas, it means different things. For DC, the two main things that will change will be that we will have more flooding, interior flooding, we are on two rivers. We'll have more flooding from microbursts and different storms, but we also will have hotter and much longer periods of heat, what we call heat emergency days. When it comes to extreme weather events, sometimes heat isn't the first thing that comes to mind. You know, people think maybe of tornadoes or of, of hurricanes, but heat, I feel like sometimes is a bit of a silent killer. And we don't think about heat as something that is an extreme weather event that's deadly. And I, and I wonder if there's a mindset shift that needs to happen and what the Department of Energy and Environment is doing to get people to wrap their head around that. But there's no question that people do think in terms of violent storms and weather change, whether it be flooding or as you say, tornadoes or derecho or things like that, those are scary events. They're usually pretty fast. We have a much higher mortality rate from long periods of heat. Chicago had a record heat wave that killed a few thousand people. We know that long periods of heat for vulnerable populations, especially infant children or seniors, that it can be deadly. And this is happening across America right now, where there's long periods of heat and that there's a higher mortality rate. So we inform the rest of the government, obviously, of that concern. And one of our responses is to try to create resiliency hubs. We're working on our first resiliency hub, which is going to be on centers where you can be safe. And that if the power goes out, we will be able to continue power, we'll be able to keep it cool. Part of the main role, I would say, of the Department of Energy Environment is to tell the whole government and the community what we see happening, what will happen, and how do we protect people you know, for a lot of us, our resiliency is the credit card in our wallet, where we have so many residents in DC that are known to be unbanked and that they are not mobile and that they don't have the opportunity to just go check into a hotel. And so that is, you know, responsibility across our government, not necessarily Department of Energy Environment, but certainly to let the government know what's gonna happen. I hear you talk about all of these breakthroughs and infrastructure and sustainability and it seems like at the end of the day a lot of it is tied to funding and I guess funding which can also be dependent on governments, politicians, administrations, maybe the economy and I wonder if if there are any concerns about funding for this work and for it to continue sort of looking down the road. Well frankly more people live in urban areas at least where urban heat is such a problem live in multifamily buildings. And we're the first city in the nation to ever pass a building energy performance standard. And now the other cities that are coming along are exempting affordable housing. 
So they will continue to not have the retrofits because they're afraid of the cost to affordable housing. We believe that we're going to be able to fund it. And so we created something called an accelerator. Accelerator uses all our tools, Green Bank, Sustainable Energy Utility, and now millions of dollars from the American Recovery Plan funds. I think it's just a matter of leadership that the mayor decided that we're all going to retrofit the city. And after 50,000 square feet, it'll come down to 25,000 to 10,000, then 5,000. It just takes leadership and we're going to have to fund it. And we are funding it. I don't think that, especially now, I think that the funding issue is lack of creativity, lack of leadership from the political world. I'm proud that the mayor with the council passed the clean energy omnibus bill that requires our buildings to retrofit. And they're going to have to do it with air source heat pumps and other means to cool these buildings down using less energy. And something that I've noticed that with heat is that it's currently, since it's something that sort of we're only seeing for a period of time in the summer, people have this finite attention when it comes to these issues where they'll be concerned about heat and heat waves, but then it'll be the fall and they'll just start thinking, you know, about being cold and they're not thinking about heat waves. We've hit a tipping point. The climate has changed dramatically. We will never have a normal climate year again. And the extreme things that are all predicted, scientists were somewhat conservative. And so it's worse than they predicted. We're going to continue to have droughts, floods, and long periods of these heat waves. And it's going to have a deleterious effect on the built environment and on people in particular. So the climate has changed. We um, are in a crisis. We probably will never be able to get anywhere near back to where it was. We're going to live with a changed climate. The question is just how much more it's going to change. I think that we've hit a tipping point where people are not going to um, forget that it's, it's just become so frequent. And we see it happening again across the world, that some areas of the country, of the world now are just becoming uninhabitable. We're having a diaspora of people having to get out of there. It's changed. We're in a climate disaster and that no one will be able to escape the memory of what's happening now. This is just the beginning. It's getting much worse. We're in a climate disaster. And I'm not concerned that people say, oh, you know, it'll, it'll be all right because, you know, it's, it's winter now. We're beyond that. Maybe that's how it used to work when there would be a particular event, you name it, whether it be a hurricane or something. But we're beyond that. We're in a climate disaster. There have been many tipping points, I would say, before. There have been many other disasters that have happened in the past, but you seem much more hopeful that currently right now is a tipping point. So I guess since you've been at the Department of Energy and the Environment, what's different about this one that you think is going to spark all of this change? Oh, I don't think we've ever had this rate of die-off, of you know extinction. I don't think we've ever had this many wildfires, forest fires caused by heat across the country, if not the world. I think that there was a period of the Dust Bowl, but now that we've used the sky as the sewer for long enough, we've been able to recreate the Dust Bowl without problems of not having crop rotation. We've recreated the Dust Bowl and we can't undo it. We can't unwind it. I'm not optimistic, I'm just the opposite. I think that um, the habitability of parts of the planet are already at that tipping point, not just the places that can no longer be there, like the Marshall Islands as they, you know, the sea levels rise. 
there's certainly a number of other areas due to sea level rise where they're just going to have to leave. But in terms of the heat, we just have areas that are now becoming unhabitable and there is nothing. We have actually increased the amount of greenhouse gases we're producing today than when it all started. It's getting worse. And so I'm actually more, you know, I, I'm not very hopeful, but I just hope that the damage that we've caused, it, it can't be undone, but we can slow it down. This is The Climate Divide, a new podcast from Hola Cultura, supported by Spotlight DC and the Fund for Investigative Journalism. This podcast has also been made available to listeners of WAMU 88.5, NPR's Consider This Podcast, and WTOP Radio. Bringing it back to DC for a second, what heat islands clearly show, it's sort of a manifestation of inequities. And I wonder... Are you optimistic that D.C. can sort of tackle these inequities that heat islands have shown and other urban environmental problems? I know that we're at a rate of planting trees and greening the city that is pretty extraordinary. I'm confident that we can green the city because we're doing it. We've rewilded almost every single stream that was a drainage ditch that is anywhere near D.C. government land. Now we're rewilding the drainage ditches on federal land. They've allowed us to go in and do that. And what that means is you take a cement drainage ditch and you pull out the cement and you turn it back into the stream that it was. And we've done that all across the city. I'm confident that we will continue to do that. You know, we've got bird species that have been seen here since the Civil War that have come back to the city. We are renaturing the city. Nature's coming back. And, you know, we're the first lead platinum city in the world. And what we're doing, I think, is extraordinary. And I'm confident that the city is going to do this. I mean, it took a lot of guts for the building energy performance standards to include affordable housing. And that's because of equity. Low-income residents deserve the same quality of life as people of higher incomes in terms of having a controlled climate and not having to pour a bunch of money into um, drafty homes that get too hot. So the city has already shown that it will do what needs to be done, hopefully other cities around the world, especially in the United States, because we're you know, second to China, the largest emitter of greenhouse gases, and the greatest um, chasm between rich and poor, and the inequities, environmental inequities, the whole equity issue of social equity. I think DC is showing what's possible, at least on regreening and returning nature to a city. And I wanted to, I guess, go back in time a little bit to when you first joined the Department of Energy and the Environment. I'm curious what drove you to be a part of this organization and what you felt could get done and what are you most proud of? I ran for mayor against the current mayor and when she won, she asked if I would run the Department of the Environment at the time. And part of that was because of the work that I'd done on the council. And so one of the first things I did in 2015 is I went to COP21. COP21 was the World Summit on Climate Change. I did not understand the degree and what a clear and present danger. I knew about climate change like everybody else, but I didn't know how terrible and dire it was going to become, which has certainly happened over the past seven years. And so when I came back, I realized that I had the Office of Energy in the Department of the Environment, but I realized that energy and environment 
are completely tied together, completely. So I went to the mayor and said, we have to rename the agency to the Department of Energy and Environment. And so um, she did. And we have made putting energy and people understanding energy environment are together has been a way to drive funding and make investments. I think that two of the things I'm most proud of would be the restoration of the Anacostia River, which historically was one of the 10th dirtiest rivers in America. And it was an example of environmental inequities that there was unswimmable and unfishable. It'll probably be fishable and swimmable within the next few years. And we really accelerate the restoration of the river. I'm very proud of that. And then, of course, the other is driving the retrofitting of the city for energy. The building energy performance standards along with the omnibus clean energy bill is groundbreaking. It's groundbreaking for the country in a country that is primarily responsible in many ways for greenhouse gases. So I'm proud of those two things, along with all the other things that go along with that. DC was bankrupt in the 90s and now is viewed as a leader for the world of what's possible. And I'm very proud of that. You know, I've got one of the smartest, best energy and environmental teams in the nation now, and they do trainings and set examples for other cities in the country. So DC in its leadership is also sharing the information that we know and learn about green infrastructure, about coming up with strategies to retrofit a city to where it's healthier, safer, and everyone can thrive. One of the people we interviewed from the community brought up her concerns about rooftop gardens and how, you know, with the way the rules are written, developers can get amenities credit for that sort of thing. Of course, they can also build public amenity. I mean, there's lots of things that can happen. But I think really what she was speaking to was feeling that there are these two Washingtons that are developing. And that's something we were very aware of last year as well when we were doing our first reporting on this. With the gentrification we're seeing in Washington, we have these layers here, right? So people even on the same blocks living very different lives, depending on whether you have HVAC, you have central air or you don't have any air conditioning at all. And also in terms of parks and green spaces, you know, the debate over gentrification is very intense here, but are you optimistic? Are you confident that the city can make sure that we don't diverge into a city with these two different lives, very dramatically different experiences, especially in the summertime? Well, we're focusing on the summertime. So I see that a continual retrofit of the city will occur. I think DC is also a little bit different. We've got a lot of national park land over in Ward 7 and 8, so that almost every residence in walking distance to a forest and to a park, but of getting their actual neighborhoods greened, you know, that's our priorities where we spend money first. When we have money for adding more green infrastructure, certainly right now, the 8 million a year we're getting for maintenance repair of the green infrastructure we've already put in. It goes into War 7 and 8 first. I, I think one of the most surprising things to me is that when I got to DOEE, it was a regulatory agency. Now we provide, especially through energy, but we provide about $100 million a year that goes out our door for energy and green infrastructure. And we become a workforce development agency that the entry level, we're employing young people out of Anacostia High School in partnership to learn how to remove invasive species, and manage green infrastructure. It's a great entrance way into green careers. We um, are training 150 people a year for how to work on solar. 
and install solar, sell and teach people about solar. And that's the fastest job market, you know, in the country is around solar. So I think one of the things that has impressed me is the degree to which we have shifted over to also being workforce development, not just a regulatory agency and an investment agency for, with our green bank that we started at DOEE, Sustainable Energy Utility, and now helping communities meet our standards. And again, nobody's exempt. The whole idea of thinking you're doing someone a favor by exempting them from stormwater requirements consigns them to not having green infrastructure. We don't do that. And you can bet that I get calls from developers and other do-good folks saying, look, we could put in more public housing, you know, if we didn't have to meet your requirements. And my job is to say, you got to meet them. A lot of our community, the Hispanic community, live in rent-controlled housing. And we do have this large swath of low-income people living in rent-controlled housing, which is kind of a different set of rules. Can you address that at all? And, you know, what are the plans for rent-controlled housing? We've cataloged all of the affordable housing buildings, multifamily, for investments and working with our accelerator for retrofitting to meet building energy performance standards. All rent control buildings are considered affordable in our category for helping to retrofit those buildings. All rent control buildings are included. Again, what happens is that you get an energy audit. They go through the building and say, you know what, if you do this, 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 you'll be able to reduce your energy bills and meet our building energy performance standards. And then we work with the building owners to um, say, all right, this is how, certainly in affordable housing and rent control, they don't have the ability to often provide the, the financing to service big loans. So we've got the tools to help them do it. And so they're not exempt from being considered affordable housing. And in fact, we went the other way. There's rent control buildings with quite wealthy people in them up Wisconsin Avenue, as you know. We're including them, you know, we're not doing a cutoff. We're not gonna worry about who's gonna be exempt. We're being inclusive. So in terms of green infrastructure, everyone's involved. Any of the buildings that get retrofitted at 50% or more have to meet our stormwater requirements. Every single building that's 50,000 square feet and higher have to meet our energy performance requirements. And we have the funds to help everybody do it. What would you like to say to the residents of the city about heat islands and staying safe in the summer or what the city is doing? Anything you'd like to add? Well, I think we need to enroll everybody to understand the health challenges and emergency and the danger of long periods of heat. Like you've noted is that people don't realize how dangerous it is. And we need help with telling more and more people that heat's a killer, it shortens your life in, in many different ways. And it is also something that impacts young children who need adult intervention to be sure that they're staying cool. It is a problem. And I just want everyone to know that we're gonna have longer periods of high heat and it's very dangerous. And so we will do our part on the government side, but we all have to become aware. It's just like, you have to know to wear a seatbelt. You have to know when you get a storm warning that you need to be sure you're on high ground if there's tornadoes or flooding. The heat's the same way. 
And so this podcast is important. Public education is important. This is a high killer, a high um, stakes killer, and it will get much worse in our city. And so we have a city that understands and knows that. I think we're being tough on trying to do this. We're going to put more and more what we call resiliency hubs in our most vulnerable neighborhoods to help people during emergencies. But this is require everybody being smart. It's just like when you have a busy street in front of you, you look both ways and you teach children to look both ways. You know, or you're, you're gonna get hit by a vehicle. We're gonna have to learn to be smart about heat, about to stay hydrated, look for the warning signs, know how to ask somebody about the warning signs. This is a clear and present danger for all of our residents. And so my advice is that we all get smart about it. And I appreciate this podcast. Well, thank you so much, Director Wells, for joining us and having this conversation. You bet. My pleasure. The Climate Divide is edited by me, Claudia Peralta Torres, and Jose Luis Mendoza. Additional interviews were conducted by Lucia Matamoros, Talia Jackson, Jennifer Alfaro, and Barbara Ron Giron. Christine McDonald is the series editor and executive director of Hola Cultura. This project is supported by Spotlight DC, the Capital City Fund for Investigative Journalism, and the Fund for Investigative Journalism.